Now, home is a lot of work. Just plain work. When work at home is planned and organized for cooperation, there can usually be more time for leisure. I'm certainly in favor of those things. Leisure, fun. Who isn't? Wouldn't we all be happier if we worked out a little system for living together in harmony? But how can we manage them? We'll have to work out the full answer together. Say, Mom, it's well. Family problems can be solved through frank and friendly discussion, which points the way to a happy family life. You know, this is beginning to be quite a family project. It certainly is. Well, we've come a long way since the 60s, haven't we? I want to begin with a prayer because, as I mentioned earlier, Full-on warning to the men, this message is going to be slanted toward you this morning. I just can't help myself. I think uh, the beauty of this text, uh, the only way I can draw out the beauty of this text is to do what the Apostle Paul did and address men. Uh, ladies, don't leave. Uh, we want you here, if for no other reason, to bookmark this message on our Facebook page and casually replay it every now and then when you feel it could be helpful for your husband and your marriage. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we as men think about who we want to model ourselves after, Father, you are right there at the top. And what we appreciate most about you, Father, is your grace and forgiveness, which we desperately need. And Father, we appreciate that you sent your Son to live as our perfect substitute also to be our model, but more importantly, to be our Savior. And so, Lord, as we approach your word today, um, may the thoughts of my heart, the meditation of my mind, the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and redeemer, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. Rudyard Kipling, anybody recognize that name? Maybe some of you have seen a certain Disney movie you didn't even realize was originally penned by Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling was a early, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century author, adventurer, uh, loved to go around. I, I think we've got a picture of him. I don't think you can really uh, appreciate Rudyard Kipling uh, without seeing this man. He, you can see that he... It looks a little bit like Teddy Roosevelt to me. And Teddy Roosevelt was a, a, a renowned adventurer of about this same era. When I was in school, many, many, many decades ago, there was a certain poem by Rudyard Kipling that we had to memorize, or at least know, and the name of this poem is If. Now, Rudyard Kipling, himself a man's man, wrote this poem to indicate what his thoughts about manliness were. And it's a little bit long, but I put it up on the slides. Again, I'm going to ask you to just reflect a little bit as I read through this on the slides, because I don't think this is merely an early 20th century idea of what a man is and what a man is called to do. 
I think it's actually good for us to reflect on in the 2020s. So this is what Rudyard Kipling says about being a man. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings, nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son." What an interesting take, isn't it, on manhood? And I, I don't know if you have in your own mind uh, men like Rudyard Kipling or others. Maybe you can think of other men who were adventurers like he was. This, this man, Rudyard Kipling, lived in India, grew up in India. You'll recognize that in the Jungle Book. He lived in England, then America, and then spent considerable time in South Africa. That was just him living his life, not to mention all his travels. And came to understand what on many continents could be considered manhood. There are others though, aren't there? I mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. Maybe your model is Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or other historical figures. One of my personal favorites is a Roman emperor by the name of Marcus Aurelius, who was an amazing leader, a philosopher king in his own right. Or maybe you think about some of the more cultural icons. Maybe you think of movie actors who model for you what you think manhood should look like. Is it Brad Pitt? Your wife hopes that it is. Or, or who is it? Which among the actors would you say? Dwayne The Rock Johnson in Jungle Book? What it, whatever, it, whatever it might be, we all have models in our mind. And here's the truth about things like manhood. Manhood typically is caught, not taught. 
Not, not really many of us have, asked, have been asked to memorize a poem and recite it to ourselves so that we remember the definition of manhood. And if we were asked to memorize it in elementary school or high school or college lit, we've probably forgotten the words long ago. And so where we get our ideas about maleness and manhood, and, and as the apostle is going to talk about today, being a great husband, typically come from people around us, the closest people around us. How did our dad act? What were our uncles like? What are the men who are our closest friends in our circle? How do they behave? It's not us thinking about how does Mark Wahlberg behave. It's us thinking about how dad behaves. And the Apostle Paul comes to men in this city of Ephesus, and there were those same struggles, struggles like we have today about what does manhood mean? I don't know if there's been an era in recent United States history where there's been more confusion about this very topic of what does it mean to be a man? You can, I, I did a little bit of research on this, and I can tell you, if you go online and just ask that question, you're going to get dozens of ideas about what makes a real man, depending on your source, depending on your website. And so, what's our model as followers of Jesus Christ? Who is the person that we can look to to show us, to model for us what true maleness and manhood and being a great husband is all about? And I'm going to advance a proposal to you, a theory to you that Paul's saying it's not that hard to answer that question because Paul says all we have to do is look to our Savior Jesus Christ. And so I want to read for you Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to take a moment and just uh, pull open your Bible to Ephesians 25. You'll also find it here in the program, Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. And ladies, by the way, if you look up, you'll see... Uh, a message that's coming in a couple weeks. So don't feel disappointed that we're not talking about your side of things today. That's coming. But we're going to begin at verse 25 that, that addresses, in the English translation, husband, but, but actually in the Greek could be translated husband or men. Okay? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become 
one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here's the question we want to ask today. In fact, I think there's a little bit of a set of questions that we want to ask today. What makes a man a man? And then, as Paul does here, following that, what makes a man a husband? And then finally, maybe most importantly of all, most personally of all, is what makes a man a godly man? A man who follows Christ, a man who, as David was described, is a man after God's own heart. What makes that? What makes a man after God's own heart? And so, first of all, we're going we're gonna to talk about three things today. You're gonna, this is very pastorly. It's three words that all begin with M. So, number one, we're going to talk about our model for manliness. We're going to talk, number two, about our motive for manliness and then finally, we're going to talk about our method for manliness. So if you want to take a moment, just fill in that first one. Number one, our model for manliness. Let's break this fairly long set of verses in Ephesians 5 down. I want to, it's, in your, it's in your notes. If you haven't taken them out, you can look at them. But I want to just uh, talk about verse 25 and the very beginning of verse 26. Let me repeat reading that. Again, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. When I was doing my research, I came across a definition that I thought just encapsulated everything about man that is taught in our culture. And what I found interesting about it was that it wasn't too far off, I think, from what we're going to study from the Apostle Paul, but it just sort of breathed it into one phrase. And it's a, it's a quote from a gentleman uh, named Art McKay who's written uh, several contemporary books about manliness, also has a website about the art of manliness. Manhood has always been about the competence to be effective in the world. Think about that for a second. We'll, we'll leave that up. Just, just motor on that for a second. Camp out there. This is something that I think is true of how God has wired the male side of things. And I'm not saying women don't want this. Please don't mistake me. But I think there is an extra little bit of oomph for males in society to do things that are effective and that men want to be seen as competent in the world. Now, that's no different in marriage. In fact, in this same chapter, when we talk about women, it's going to say, husbands, love your wives. In other words, enter into relationship with her meaning you need to balance your desire to be effective with a, a, a strong desire to build relationships. And it's going to say to the women, women, wives, respect your husbands, which kind of means 
show them admiration for their effectiveness. That, that women are to balance their natural wiring for love and relationship and unity and togetherness with, hey, we've got to get things done. And when your husband gets things done, show him that that matters to you. So isn't it interesting that Paul, when he addresses the men, says, don't forget the love side. And when he addresses the women, says, don't forget the competence and effectiveness side that you can see in your husband. Why does Paul do that? He does that because as sinful people, we tend to want to see things in the currency that we like. If I'm all about relationships, what do I want from my husband? Why can't you just sit down and pay attention to me? Why can't we talk sometimes? When's the last time we went on a date night? Why isn't there just time for us to be together anymore? And men are like, I'm getting stuff done. That's why. I'm, I'm knocking it out of the park at work and providing very well for this family. What are you talking about, wife of mine, whom I love so much? And so Paul is saying to us as men, there's a need for balance, even though we might be hardwired for competence and effectiveness. And so husbands love your wives, he says to us. Take time. And that word, by the way, is that very famous word. Most Christians have heard it. If you're a guest here today, maybe you've even heard it. It's the word agape. It's a kind of self-sacrificial love that always puts the first foot forward, that doesn't wait for someone to do something kind to them or lovable to them so that they can pay back. This is the kind that invests first, even maybe when it's a little bit Risky to invest that kind of love in someone. It's an act of grace, undeserved love, that says, I love because that's who I am. And that's the kind of love that Paul is urging upon us men. And he even says, who's the model? Who's the, who's the ultimate example of someone who constantly puts the first foot forward in love? and graces us with this, this affection that he has for us. Well, of course, Jesus Christ, the one that, that took love to the nth degree all the way to the cross and died so that he could love us, shed his blood, was tortured so that he could love us and win forgiveness of sins for us. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and then he talks about the sacrifice that always accompanies this kind of love that Jesus models for us and gave himself up for her. His wife is us, the church, the collective. And Jesus loved his wife, us, Christians, so much so that there was nothing that could get in the way of that love, not the threats to stop loving, not the actual carrying out of those threats to crucify him. Nothing was going to get in the way. Nothing was going to roadblock Jesus' love for us. And he took it 
as I said a moment ago, all the way to the cross to the nth degree, and why? To make her holy. What do you hear when you hear those words, to make her holy? When I first read them, I, I think, well, to clean her up. And we did need cleaning. We're the bride of Christ. We need forgiveness of sins. We needed to have the holiness that Christ has given as this beautiful gift to us. But I believe that when Paul uses holy here, he's going beyond that concept of simply being made right or declared right more accurately with God. He's actually going to a meaning of holy that we don't think of often, but I want to share with you. Because I think this is most men's desire with their own wives. If you're a one-woman man, which as Christ's followers, that's what we aspire to be, you want her to be a one-man woman. You want her to be fully set aside for you. And that's exactly what that word holy means. It means dedicated to one person, devoted to only one. It's set apart. When we are holy, the reason we act in a holy way, that is in a clean way, in a, in a God-caring way, is because we're wholly devoted to the Lord. That's what true holiness is, is to be completely set apart for this Jesus who completely set himself apart all the way to the cross for us. And Paul uses this as a model. And he says to us men, don't you want your wife to be completely devoted to you? Completely set apart for you? Well then, Paul says, here's the recipe. Love her with this agape love and sacrifice yourself for her. So let's, let's talk about this because I think this is where the rubber kind of meets the road. Why don't you write this in first? The model for our manliness is Jesus Christ. Here's something I want you to notice about Jesus. Because we tend to talk about the big things of Jesus. We talk about Christmas and his birth and incarnation. He's true God and true man. We, we fast forward to his death and his resurrection. But think for a moment about all that lies between those points. The daily exercise of agape love that Jesus showed along that way. The little things, well, they're big things too because many of them are miraculous, but Jesus would pause and talk to someone who was ill and heal them. Jesus would notice that there was a group of people that were hungry and feed them, of course, miraculously. As men, we can't always pull off the miracle. But can we notice that someone has needs? Jesus would spend time talking with his disciples, paying attention, focusing on them, so that they could grow and develop. 
And, and what I want to say is I think that's what Paul is trying to remind us of here in Ephesians chapter 5. He's saying, yes, the big sacrificial acts of love that Jesus did are important, but don't forget those little sacrificial acts of love. That's part of being a man. Part of being a man is to be willing on a daily basis to make sacrifices, to give things up, to give things away that we might actually want for ourselves, but we step back and we go, what's more important here? That I, that I tightly cling to this thing or that I'm willing to sacrifice? And guys, there's no more bigger sacrifice in today's world, no bigger sacrifice of love than time. In fact, I actually think that in 2022, T-I-M-E, did I spell that right? Time is how you spell L-O-V-E. It's just you don't use L-O-V-E anymore to spell love. You use T-I-M-E. And so the sacrifice is of probably the most valuable thing that any of us have is to devote and spend and invest time in our families, in our wives. That's the model for manliness, Jesus Christ. Let's talk about the motive for manliness. And we'll, go, we'll dive right into the second section, Ephesians 5, 28 to 30. In this same way, Jesus ought in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Notice what Paul says here. Our motive for manliness. Now, if, if you look at that, you might be a little bit thinking to yourself, well, it seems like Paul is encouraging men to have a selfish motive. It kind of starts that way, doesn't it? Look, take care of your wives, men, because when you're taking care of your wives, you're taking care of you. And, and, and Paul is not really encouraging us to be selfish as much as he's encouraging us to be logical. We, even in our own language today, say, happy wife, you can help me finish this. Happy wife, happy... Mm-hmm. That's just logic. That, that's just common sense, right? But I want you to pay more attention to what the Apostle Paul says here at the end. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ, our model, does the church, for we are members of his body, especially those last seven words, for we are members of his body. What's, what's Paul doing there? Paul's reminding us that there's this beautiful gospel truth that we dare never neglect, that Jesus makes us part of himself, literally his body, that we as his bride are part of him. This is part of the marriage metaphor that goes all the way back to Genesis, isn't it? And the two 
It says in Genesis, and it will be quoted in just a moment here too, the two will become, anybody know how it ends? One flesh. Meaning that when you're husband and wife, there is a unity and a oneness that both parties need to be constantly striving for. Something that they've been given already but needs to be tended to daily. This oneness, this unity between husband and wife. Because in a fallen world, the title of this series, once again, is Imperfect Family. In an imperfect world filled with sinners like you and me, that unity and oneness, that becoming one flesh, is always under threat. It needs to be carefully nurtured and cared for in words, in thoughts, in heart, in action. Otherwise, it will disintegrate. And so, this is what Paul is reminding them of. How were we by nature? As sinful people, we were not we didn't come into this world as members of Christ's body. We were Christ's creation. We were made by Him. But immediately from conception on, sin infected us and we were divided from God. What, what, what does it say in the Gospels when Jesus says at the end, when there's this great judgment, those who didn't follow Jesus, what will they be told? They'll be affirmed in what the situation already was. You didn't want to be united with me, unbeliever. Therefore, do you know the little phrase that Jesus says on Judgment Day? Depart from me. That's our natural condition apart from Jesus and faith in him apart from the cross and the empty tomb, apart from the perfect life that he gives us, his own, so that we can have it and be holy in the sight of God, we are departed from him, separate from him, broken. But Paul says that's not any longer the case for you, Ephesians. You, members of amazing love, that's not the case. You're not You're no longer departed from Him. You're no longer separated from Him by your sin because you've been redeemed. You're forgiven. You're dearly loved children of God. You are actually so unified with your Savior that you are His body. That's an amazing truth. Here's what I want you to write down. The deepest motive, the reason why we want to become men after God's own heart. Not just men popular in culture, not just Rudyard Kipling men, but men after God's own heart is our oneness with Jesus. A oneness that we don't deserve, that we never earned, but is one of the greatest gifts that God could give you is to be united with your God. Think about this. I I came up with a list of attributes of Jesus as our model, and, and I'm going to just put it up on a, a slide here. If you were to model yourself after Jesus and then be motivated to, to love and serve the way he does, wouldn't these be great descriptions of how Jesus loves? Loving and compassionate, self-sacrificing, 
honest and straightforward for sure. He never backed down when he knew something was off. In fact, he was the opposite, strong and unbending and doing right, forgiving, gentle, humble. He was self-controlled, patient. And then I want to talk about that last one. He was prayerful. When Jesus was under stress, and I'm going to tell you as men, most of us tend to bury our stress and try to compartmentalize it. And if we have fears or if we're angry, we try to stuff it inside. We don't want anyone to get beyond the stoic facade that we hope will be up at all times. Jesus was a man's man. You see those attributes there. But instead of stuffing his emotions, when Jesus was under stress, and you see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't you? What did he do? He connected with his model. (laughs) The one who loved him unconditionally, his heavenly Father, and he prayed. Men, the, the biggest help I could give you today, if I were to boil this entire message down to to just one thing would be, be men of prayer. And I want to challenge you. If you're not a man of prayer right now, take some time every day to just step back from whatever's going on in your life and pray. I'm even going to give you this practical tip. One of the ways more recently that I've, I've found a way to do this that's helpful to me is that in the Bible app, Many of you have the Bible app now to read your Bible and carry it along with you in your phone wherever you go. There's also a little prayer app contained within the Bible app where you can make a little list of the things you think need to be prayed for. And then it, it, if you start there, it will guide you through about five or six steps. It doesn't take long. It can take five minutes or less. And if you use that app within the Bible app that helps guide you through prayer, you'll begin to have this moment of prayer that takes you through every day. Let me tell you, when it comes to stress and frustration and anger and how to be a man after God's own heart, it's great to take some time for prayer. So that's our motive for manliness. Jesus loved us the men that we were, and made us one with him. Now, finally, our method for manliness. I want to show you a a little slide, but I'm going to read this passage first. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. However, each, of you, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. I'm going to tell you that I could, I could go off on two dozen habits that great husbands do as they reflect upon how Jesus Christ loves his bride, the church. But I'm, I'm going to boil it down to one thing. And I, put that bubble diagram up for us because I think this, this is how... This is how we develop the habits and the methods of being a great man, a manly man, but also a great husband. First of all, keep your relationship with God at the center of everything. Love your wife, but do you see the relative size of those slides? My relationship with God 
and my relationship with my wife? Do you know that in the Bible there's an actual order of love that's given us? God, spouse, children, others. That's the order in which we're meant to keep things. And wives, you can help your men do this. Encourage them and admire them. Give them respect for when you see they are keeping their relationship with God at the center of their lives. That will only encourage them. But men, you have to be determined. And there's, there's lots of other bubbles you could fill in with your job, with your hobbies. We all have relationships with all of those things. But as we read the Bible and as we hear from the Apostle Paul Keep that relationship with God at the center of things. And then notice one other thing. The bubble that says, with my wife, is bigger than anything else after God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it is for Jesus. His relationship with his Father is first, and he cares about nothing more than us. Christians, his bride, the church, his whole life was devoted to us. And so as we look at Jesus and his great love and forgiveness for us, I'm just asking you men to take a moment and go, does my life look like this? And if it doesn't, because remember, we're an imperfect family. I'm not here to shoot tons of guilt at you. I, I do want you to reflect on your guilt, your sin. We all have it. My life doesn't always look like that. I guarantee you it doesn't always look like that. In fact, I would probably say on a daily basis, my own life drifts from that image. And yet, what else can we do but go to God in prayer and ask Him to realign us knowing what the godly image looks like? And that's why I put that up there for you. We're not going to be perfect. We're imperfect men in imperfect families. But at least in God's grace, in God's mercies new every day, forgiven and redeemed, we can go, what should my marriage look like? What should I look like as a man after God's own heart? And that image is hopefully something that will work its way into your heart and your mind and you keep it there as something with the Holy Spirit's help because you'll only do it with his help that you can aspire to and work toward every day. Notice what Paul says. How do we know that this relationship with God and then wife is supposed to be more important? From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, it said, men, leave your mom and dad. Typically, until you get married, the most important relationship in your life is with your mom and dad. Genesis and Paul say, if you're giving up that important relationship for your wife, not giving it up entirely, but but at least trading it in to make your wife the most important one in your life, then all the others have to be below that. So that's our method for manliness. Prioritize God first and wife second. You can write this down. The method for our manliness makes our wives our priority for love above all else except for God himself. 
Take a look at that next step. I simply want you to go home in the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, knowing that you are forgiven, dearly loved Son of God, and ask, what changes do I need to make to show that my wife is my priority? And I want to challenge you, don't wait, start today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your love. We are grateful that you modeled for us true agape love, true grace that always puts the first step forward. But not only that, that even when, when we are unfaithful to you, you remain faithful to us. When we, with our sins, spit in your eye, God, you wipe your eye and love us again. What amazing love that is. And Lord, as we reflect on your love, let that be the motivation. Your forgiveness for us, your love for us, your relationship and oneness with us, let that be the purest motivation for us to love our wives and the other people in our lives that you've called us to love and be truly men after your heart, O oh Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.